The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to episode number 200 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. Why does it matter to be a good client in the AEC industry? That's our topic for today. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode, I will be talking with Dave Scudis, Director of Design, Construction, and Maintenance at the Mile High Flood District in Denver. Dave received a Bachelor of Science degree in Civil Engineering from the University of Florida in December of 2000. He's a registered professional engineer, a certified floodplain manager, a lead accredited professional, and a Toastmasters competent communicator. He's also the author of the recently published book, The Effective Client, Why Being a Good Client is Smart Business in the Architecture, Engineering, and Construction Industries, which is exactly what we're going to be talking to Dave about today. He also kind of gets into how owners are really in competition with each other for a very limited pool of capable designers and builders, and that's really why it matters to be a good client. Now, before we jump in with Dave, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI's reputation and history sets them apart. PPI has helped engineers achieve their licensing goals since 1975. Their courses and review materials are based on decades of experience. They schedule their courses over two to three months to ensure you can properly retain information and allow enough time for homework. They ensure students don't have to cram for their exam. Their courses come with everything you need. They offer robust programs with access to lectures, forums, learning hub, books, slides, and so on. Their programs place a huge emphasis on homework. They believe that practicing as much as possible is crucial to exam success. PPI's instructors are very highly rated on student surveys. They are extremely attentive and knowledgeable. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. Again, that's ppi2pass.com. I also want to mention that if you're looking for people leadership, project management, or seller-doer business development courses, we have them at EMI, and they're tailored for the consulting industry. To check out our latest slate of courses, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and just click the upcoming training button at the top of the page. I also want to mention that we do have a new show. It's called The Civil Engineering CEO, where I interview CEOs of some of the leading civil engineering firms across the country and ask them how they're handling some of the biggest challenges we're facing today, like trying to hire talented people, how to prepare for the infrastructure funding that's coming our way, how to deal with technology as it unfolds and gets faster, You can check it out at civilengineeringceo.com. It's a video-only show on YouTube, but you can find all episodes at civilengineeringceo.com. With that, let's jump into today's episode. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'd like to welcome our guest on to the podcast for today. Dave Scudis is the Director of Design, Construction, and Maintenance at the Mile High Flood District out in Denver. And Dave is also author of a new book, The Effective Client, Why Being a Good Client is Smart Business in the Architecture, Engineering, and Construction Industries. Dave, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks for having me. 
tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you do on a daily basis in your role. Well, I'm a civil engineer by training, but my job right now is I work for a public agency called the Mile High Flood District. And we're a special district that encompasses the greater metro Denver area. And we, in really, really basic terms, facilitate the rhyme and reason to how our urban waterways are managed as they cross 40 city and county boundaries throughout the metro area. And my specific role at our agency is I'm the director of design, construction, and maintenance. And so in practice, that means there's about two dozen internal staff and about $75 million a year that I'm responsible for making sure we implement in infrastructure and maintenance on a yearly basis. So it's kind of a high-level management role at this point, but civil engineer by training. Let's talk a little bit about your book, The Effective Client, Why Being a Good Client is Smart Business in the Architecture, Engineering, and Construction Industries. Give us an overview of what the book's about. I mean, obviously, it sounds obvious a little bit from the title, but talk about it a little bit further. Well, the most simple version I could say is that it's about why it matters to be seen as a desirable customer. So if I was going to tweet the theme of the book, it would be that great clients attract more talented project teams, they get more for their money, and they build better projects. And being a bad client is bad business. That's the basic gist. It's written mostly for public agencies, but I think that it applies to anybody who hires sub-consultants or subcontractors that they have a choice about who they're going to do business with and not. And for people where it's, it is your business model that year after year, you're going to need to hire designers and builders. Boy, it is in your best interest to be seen as a desirable customer. And so I basically, the way I went about writing the book was I had a curiosity for it, which I can get into later and what triggered that. But uh, I interviewed around 50 consultants and contractors, uh, fellow client project managers and Ask them a bunch of open-ended questions, how they choose their clients, how do you price work differently for different clients, you know, have you ever fired a client, why was that, I was looking for the juice, what motivates you, what saps your motivation. Looking for all these sort of little nuances, it ended up boiling down to three basic themes, which was, you know, if you want to be a good client, you got to build professional trust, you got to pay fairly and punctually, and you have to manage risk equitably. And I was able to take all those topics and expound them into a book full of really great anecdotes. That's the gist. Sounds like it was a lot of work. It sounds like it was worth it because you know you did find some really key takeaways that I'm sure all those that read the book can certainly learn from and apply. So Dave, your background's in civil engineering, like you mentioned early on, not a lot of engineers become authors. So talk about what actually drove you to write the book. The nexus for it was I was going to speak at a national conference or I wanted to find a topic to speak at it for a national conference, which, which felt like a big deal because it was my first time. And I wanted to submit a really great topic. And this happened to be right after Colorado experienced the 2013 floods. There's been so many floods in the nine years since then that it's hard to keep them all track. But we had this massive flood that impacted around a quarter of our state and definitely the area I'm in. And so being in the flood control business, it was kind of a big deal. One of the ways it was a big deal was that in 2013, the economy was recovering, oil and gas was huge in our state, was really picking back up, and the flood hit and basically destroyed all this infrastructure. Anybody with an engineering scale or an excavator became in really high demand, and it was crazy trying to put everything back together. And one thing I really noticed and appreciated was how much the designers and builders we'd been working with for decades, in some cases, really responded to our calls when they were getting an awful lot of phone calls. And it just struck me with like, that's really great, but what's the reason behind that? So anyway, 
I did all these curiosity conversations, like I mentioned earlier, and it was really just to do a keynote, to do a talk at a conference. And eventually I got to do it as a keynote, but the longest talk I've ever done for this topic was like 45 or 50 minutes, but I had enough material to talk for four hours because there's just so many great stories I heard. And I just thought, gosh, it'd be sad not to have these other great stories, not see the light of day because I'm limited by the medium of public speaking. So, you know, I had written them all down in very basic form and I decided, you know, if I ever was going to write a book, it'd have to be about this. I had a colleague in the industry here locally who had written a book and he's the first person I ever met who had written a book. And I was like, oh my gosh, mere mortals actually write books. I didn't know that was possible. Who does that? And it's definitely a thing of where you're you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I was spending a lot of time with this guy for a period of time. And that was kind of inspiring. And it was being inspired by somebody who was an author and kind of picking his brain about it. And then having content, I felt I really felt strongly needed to be shared. And so that was kind of the nexus for it. It's a great point. I mean, a lot of times when you're doing a talk at a conference, you are very limited to an amount of time and you've got to kind of fit stuff into that. However, because of all the interviews you had done and the people you spoke to, you had so much information that the book really was a, a great format for that. The fun part was all these curiosity conversations, figuring out the themes. That was really fun and interesting. But when it comes to actually executing on converting that into a book, that is just all work, man. And your curiosity for the topic is 100% satiated at that point. And now it's just all work to fit together grammatically correct sentences that flow. And oh, man, it wasn't easy, but I felt it was worth it. I've written a couple of books, and I feel like it really takes up a large portion of your life when you're writing a book because it's like you have to dedicate consistent time to it or else you're just not going to get it done. And then obviously when you're consisting uh, putting that much time on something, you're taking time away from other things. So it's like anything else. But if you could do it and it comes out great, it could certainly help a lot of people, which you know sounds like your book certainly can. And so taking the next step there, are there any particular stories or anecdotes from your book that you might want to share here? Yeah. So the book's broken down into sections and one's about trust and one's about paying people fairly and punctually and the other one's about risk. And one of the trust stories I like to tell, and, and there's different aspects of trust. You know, there's, do you trust somebody's competence? Do, does somebody do what they say they're going to do? But then sort of a third aspect of trust is just an interpersonal thing. So how people treat each other. When we have our meetings for projects, the quality of our discourse matters quite a bit and the freedom or lack of freedom people feel in sharing ideas. And so in one particular meeting we had on this, this design project, we were looking at our, as this long linear stream project and we had the landscape architect wanted input on the planting plant. And so he unfurls this like six foot roll plot on the table and we're all sitting around and asking for owner's input on the planting plan. And there's all these symbols and tree, you know, sort of schematics on there. And I, I kind of look at this thing and my initial instinct, and I said this, I said, oh, I'm an engineer. And I sort of waved my hand over the plan and said, ah, I'm good with it. I trust you guys. You know, this is your thing. It's not my thing. I paused and I thought about it for a minute or two. And I was like, well, actually, I do have a few questions because how big are these things going to grow? Are they going to impact flood hydraulics? How are people going to get down to the creek? And I peppered the design team with questions for a few minutes, maybe, and maybe I belabored the issue, perhaps. But a fellow sitting next to me who is on the ownership team, not even one of the consultants, he got tired of my questions and he kind of threw his hands up in the air and went, oh, after about four or five questions in, 
I kind of saw him do this out of the corner of my eye and, and he's a guy I know really well. We give each other a hard time. So I just kind of looked at him and I said, you, you all right? Can I continue? Sort of giving him, throwing it back at him. And so it didn't phase me, but at the end of the meeting, after most people had gone and he had gone, one of the consultants came up to me and said, gosh, I actually wanted to ask more questions about the planting plan, but I wasn't going to bring it up after I saw how you were made fun of. And so it's one of these sort of aspects of trust is if you want teams to be really high functioning and design teams where you're needing creative input and you want to just throw everything against the wall, you have to be careful about how you show up and the sort of discourse to either enable or disable, especially as an owner, because you need to model the behavior, what you want displayed. So that's just a little story that always stuck with me as one of the ones I share in the book. I think that one of the things that I have found myself as a civil engineer going through a lot of projects and working with team members is that I feel like, especially for less experienced professionals, they're very impressionable. People do things, people take actions. It can definitely impact them sometimes in negative ways. You know, if someone's not a confident designer or engineering professional as of yet, and someone were to do something like what happened to you, you could prevent that person from really speaking up in their career for years from that point on. So I do think it's important, you know, your message there about understanding the impact you have on other people when you say something, when you make motions or whatever you're doing in these meetings, because it can really have an impact. Yeah, especially as the owner, because you're kind of the, the captain of the ship, your impact is more heavily weighted on people, for sure. I have a few other stories, but it depends on how much time you want to use. It's up to you. Yeah, you could share another story, Dave. You have another one? I'll share one about risk. There's all sorts of means by which we can make a vendor, a designer or builder feel risk, right? They could feel, I don't know, am I going to get paid? It could be something to do with inspection, how much time something's going to take. Is this owner going to be a pain administratively because of all the paperwork? There's all sorts of sources of risk. And definitely in procurement, you know, are they going to get the job or not? Is the effort you're making me go through in procurement going to be worth it to either maybe get this job or not? There's all sorts of sources of risk. But I probably have to share two stories because they kind of go together pretty well. But one is um, there was a, a contractor working on this long linear project and they were repairing a bunch of reinforced concrete along. It was like this concrete line channel and it needed all the concrete ripped out and replaced. So they're doing this mile long project. It's a $2.7 million job. They've got this veteran inspector they're working with, and it goes really great. They've got a good relationship with this fellow. Everybody's happy with the work. They get towards the end. Inspector's happy. Contractor's making a profit. Ownership team is so happy that they change order in a million dollars more of work. They say, let's keep going. This is going great. But then tragedy strikes. The city's inspector has a heart attack and dies, which is just really sad. A new inspector for the city comes on the job. This new inspector took a very untrusting stance with the contractor, didn't trust a single thing they were doing, insisted on seeing every square inch of subgrade, every steel tie, uh, got to the point where the contractor missed every single scheduled concrete pour in the job. And their crews started giving only a 60% effort because they knew no matter what they did, this inspector was going to make them redo their work anyway. Here you had inspection that was so overzealous that it actually degraded the quality of work. Just by taking it too far. And that story always stuck with me because you had the same contractor, same project, same owner, and you just change out the inspector. And now it was just like a total disaster for the contractor. And what do you think they're going to think next time they bid a project for that community? It's like, is that inspector going to be on there? What are they going to do? And again, I think it speaks to the world of civil engineering, which is there's different people on every project that we all have to work with. And 
all those people are integral to the project and the success of the project. And like you said, one person changes, everything can change, which is a good thing to think about in terms of when you're on the design side. I know a lot of our listeners are, I guess as part of risk is understanding all of the players involved and you know what could go wrong, what couldn't go wrong. Have we worked with this person before? Have we not worked with this person before? It's interesting because I was reading not long ago about like, I was just looking at like athletic coaches that were very successful to see if there was like patterns with them. And it said like some of the coaches, one of the things that they would study was like the different like refs for games. And they would know like, okay, this referee calls these types of penalties and they're going to be refing our game today. So we need to be aware of that. We need to adjust to that, which is kind of like you reminded me a little bit of that because, okay, who's going to be on our project? this inspector. Okay. We've worked with this inspector before. We know he or she likes things done a certain way. Whereas if you're working with another inspector, we know maybe we need to change things up a little bit. So I definitely think understanding the people that you're working with in these different roles is really important. It's a good message. And I think a good thing for all of us to be aware of. Yeah. And even taking that a step further with, let's just say inspectors, I had a a really great contractor tell me there are certain communities he refuses to work for simply because their stormwater inspectors are, in his mind, abusive. And so there's all sorts of different people that interact with our consultants and contractors, and they all need to get the memo that, hey, certain behavior towards our contractors or consultants isn't okay. Now you have a job to do, and there's a time and a place to go drill sergeant on people. But if that's your standard operating procedure, then you're going to It'll probably mean your community can't attract the best consultants and contractors, and that's not good. And that reminds me of a project that I had worked on once where it was a basically a, a vacant commercial property that I think used to be a car dealership, and there was a big plumbing supply or something along those lines that wanted to come in, take the property over, revamp it, get a business in there, jobs and everything. And we were trying to help them get the approval for it. And the planning board, which is you know all local citizens, were just really harsh on this applicant. And they were trying to make them do things that were just weren't, didn't make sense. I mean, a million iterations of the parking lot. Meanwhile, there was another, something was there and existed and it worked fine. So you're going to make someone who wants to come in and invest in your community, go through a bunch of hoops. And it got to the point really where they almost gave up on the project. And ultimately someone kind of said to the town, like, you're going to lose a company that's coming in here and wants to invest in your community because you're just being silly with what you're asking them to do. And so to your point, there's a lot of players involved. And sometimes I don't think that they necessarily understand their impacts on, you know, like you said, they have a job, but at some point there's got to be a balance. Right. Yeah. Even I had a contractor directly tell me that we're in an environment right now where there's consultants and contractors are a hot commodity. Everybody's looking for labor. And so there's more work than there are people. And that's true in the construction industry too. So they have choices about who they're going to do business with. But I had a, a contractor tell me directly, he said, hey, if I have two opportunities I'm considering and one community's paperwork is painful and the other one's is not, guess which community I'm going to go work with? You know, The one that's easier to deal with. It can come down to something as simply as that. When I first got in this job, I was a consultant for nine years and then I came to work at the district here and I got into an ownership role and it's very natural for people when they get thrust into new leadership positions to feel a little insecure. That can happen. For me, that insecurity sort of showed itself with me feeling the need to prove myself occasionally and maybe not the best thing. And one way that showed up was one of the first plan sets I was reviewing in the owner role. I redlined the heck out of that thing, man. And it was just way over the top. We'll say it was mostly kind of to show people I knew what I was doing. And the uh, consultant I was working with was kind of an old, he was, 
20 years my senior, very direct sort of guy. He didn't mince words. And he actually, after seeing these my comments, he said to me, his client, it's like you're trying to justify your job with these comments, man. What gives? And I was like, what? <laughs> said that to me? But you know, I didn't take that great at the time, but it didn't take me too long to realize he was probably right and I didn't need to be that way because if I was always like that, then what's he going to do? It's either going to price in a day factor on his projects because... I was going to, and I use this acronym in the book, but a PETA, and you can, it's the pain in the blank, you know, the, you know what? And if I was going to be a pain in the butt, that was going to mean I was either going to get charged a premium or they were going to try not to work with me in the future. And so, but I figured that out pretty quickly, partially thanks to his comment, but we had a good laugh about that later once I realized I probably deserved the comment. Part of what we could take away from that story there is, you know, you need to be aware of when you do something that's not great, when you make mistakes, you know, when you kind of maybe overstep bounds and you need to recognize it to avoid doing it again. One of the things that I found in interviewing a lot of people is it seems that those that continue to be successful leaders in the field kind of don't make the same mistakes multiple times. They're able to stop, recognize it. Like you said, you recognize it ultimately and you know we're able to make some changes. And I think that that's definitely an important aspect of, especially in this world, because we work on really big projects. So if you do make a mistake or your team or your company makes a mistake, it's not good. You need to fix it, but then you got another multi-million dollar project coming down the line, right? So hopefully you can make a learning experience out of it and make a change. I know the book is still relatively new, but how has the industry responded so far? Have you gotten feedback? You heard from anyone? It's gone really well. I've had some communities bring me in to do lunch and learns and things like that, which I think has been really great. One of the funny things though, is that so many designers and built, when people have somebody in mind, they want to read the book and it's tough to gift somebody the book and say, you should read this. Cause then I'm like, why are you giving this to me? What are you trying to say? You see a little bit of that. It just takes one person in an organization to sort of get it and be like, yes, this is what I've been trying to say. And then they see the book as a way of articulating something that they know and feel, but have a hard time convincing others of. And so that's where the book can be really useful as like a book club sort of thing, or people bring me in to do lunch and learns and that sort of thing. So it's been received really well. Of course, as you can imagine, the designers and builders are like, yes. Like we said earlier, you know, going through and talking to all those different people, kind of getting like lessons learned and bringing it all together into one place. I mean, really valuable for people that have to deal with these different parties on a regular basis for sure. And then how they approach projects and owners. I know we talked a little bit about this, but talk a little bit more on how the client behavior really does affect kind of the price and the quality of the work. So I think that's really important for our listeners to take away. I'll use one anecdote to sort of boil that down is uh, one contractor, when I asked him how he prices projects, he described it this way. He says, you know, I put together all my materials, my labor, my equipment, I added my subs, I added my overhead and profit. That'll be the best price somebody could get. Then I have this sliding scale that goes anywhere from zero to 30%. And that zero to 30% is based solely on the client. I'm doing this project with. It could be based on how they deal with contracting. It could be the project manager. It could have to do with uh, the designer and the type of how good their plans tend to be or not. It could be the inspectors. And he said that zero to 30% just gets baked into all my unit prices. And once we get into the job, that extra cost doesn't ever come off if the project goes better than expected. But I've baked that in because of the this particular community or owner's reputation that they've developed. And all the consultants and contractors, they talk amongst each other and 
if you work in an industry for very long, you develop a reputation, whether you like it or not. And so that always stuck with me. I had to ask the guy, I was like, do you price things differently for different people in my own organization? And he said, yes, which of course made me think, you know, because we have different project managers, different construction managers, which made me of course think, do I get the good price? Do I not? I didn't didn't bother asking because I knew he'd probably just tell me, oh yeah, Dave, you get the best price. It makes sense though. I mean, if you're running a business of any kind, your time is valuable. If you And if the economy is such, which it is now in our world, where there's no shortage of work for sure, like you said earlier, right? So if I'm picking between two potential clients and I've got some background on them and I've worked with them before, certainly that they're the way they've acted with me, you know, the way they conduct themselves is going to be a huge factor in who I decide. And like you said, could factor in how much you're going to charge because you know that there's going to be some extra work with people, higher maintenance clients, and so on and so forth. So Dave, what are some of the things that owners do that make it difficult for vendors to do their jobs effectively? Competence is a big thing. So having people in your owner project management role that understand in reality what it takes to get a project funded, permitted, how much they really cost, those sorts of things are huge so that then you're being realistic with your, you can have somebody who's equipped to be realistic with your designers and builders. I think that's great. So just who's been there before. So there's a competence piece. Understand that the interpersonal aspect, like I had a contractor tell me, well, it's a people business and you don't typically think of construction that way. And so the way you treat people on an interpersonal level does matter. I mean, I had contractors tell me that, you know, if they deal with a community and their inspectors are mean or unpleasant, they'll lose people. They'll have foremen or superintendents quit working for them, their company and like just walk because this job ticked them off so much. And so there's real risk for them in who they're dealing with. But there's just a myriad of things that, that owners can do. Just, But I'll share just one more nuance that I haven't got into related to procurement. So I had this, I'll just share this quick story. But this consultant had been working with this community for years. Done, there was a land, they were a landscape architect. Done projects for them for years. And they, they'd usually done procurement with uh, competitive proposals and interviews, that sort of thing for projects. You know, probably a 10-year relationship. And then one day, this community decided, we're going to ask for fees as a part of our consultant selection process this time. And this is a big thing I touched on in this book. It is risky to be cheap as an owner. And this is a quote, and I forget what the exact quote is. I found this from another author. But if you pay a little extra money, that's all. You paid a little extra. But if you're cheap, that can be risky too. Because sometimes if you're too cheap, the thing you bought is incapable of doing the thing you bought it for. You know, So that's even greater risk. So being cheap is risky too. So back to this community, they decided to have consultants submit fees as a part of this RFP process. And I just hate that because people typically don't know what they're designing. There's always discovery in design. There's an alternatives process. How the heck can you know how much the fee should really be when you haven't even got into the thing yet? I mean, I just find that really ridiculous. And I'm in an owner role. So I feel very valid in saying that. I could talk all day about that. Let me get back to the story. So Community starts asking for fees with the RFPs. So the consultant is like, okay, fine. I don't like this, but we'll submit. And they go to the pre-proposal meeting and the owner team is being a little dodgy about questions about budget. They won't say what the budget is. And nine firms submit proposals and they all submit them with fees. And so then the owners open up the proposals and the fees. The consultant who submitted, they said, hey, congrats, you guys uh, did a great job in this proposal, but sorry, we're not going to select you for the work. And they said, why? And they're like, well, we opened up all the fees and they're more than the budget we had. So we're just going to design it in-house, the owner said. 
when you take that story, what do you think every single one of those consultants is going to think next time this community has an RFP out on the street? Why am I going to spend time doing this? They're going to end up doing it on their own type of thing or something like that. Yeah, it's been wasting my time. So now you've created this perception of risk for these consultants just in even chasing your work. They're like, that seems like a waste of time. I just hate when they ask for fees with proposals. It's just, oh. So Dave, what advice could you offer to industry leaders on how they can improve their standing with designers and builders so they can become like a client of choice? And I guess doing the opposite of what you just said would be one of them, but... One is to just care about that, that it isn't just bottom line dollars. I understand part of us getting away from just a straight up low bid environment because so many projects we work on are just too complex to just have low bid be the only basis by which you differentiate consultants and contractors. I think that we should be far beyond that on most projects. I mean, if you're going to mill and overlay a street, that's such a simple scope of work. Fine, go with the cheapest. But if you're going to do anything with any complexity, there is more to it than just bottom line dollars that go into making that project successful. And so I think you need to care first and foremost. I think you should go and get feedback from consultants and contractors and ask them about your community about individuals in your community. What could we be doing better? Who's good to work with? Who's not? It's a cultural shift as much as a structural shift as far as like, you know, you've got processes for procurement that can come into play, but I think it's a cultural shift and a mindset of we want to be seen as a good customer and this matters to us and it's in our best interest. And I think that's huge. The owner needs to think about their reputation Think about how their actions are going to affect them from the long term, you know, getting back to risk, thinking about those different factors. And I know I've had some experience in my career with uh, qualifications based selection on some projects. You know, like to your point, if it's a complicated project, you're not just going to say, hey, let's take the cheapest one and hope it works out, where you can really look at the qualifications and they, they kind of put the bid number in a separate envelope and you go through all their qualifications, you select the one you like the most. And then you can negotiate the fee or get into the fee with them after the fact. But again, I know in some states, there's legislation against which of these you're allowed to use and things of that nature, You know, different rules and guidelines, but certainly would make sense for some of the more complex projects. We're going to take a quick break here, and then we're going to come back in a minute. We're going to finish up with Dave by putting him on the civil engineering hot seat. We'll be back in just a minute. Civil engineering podcast. Civil engineering podcast. All right. We are back with Dave Scudis. Dave is the Director of Design, Construction, and Maintenance at the Mile High Flood District in Denver. He's also author of the book, The Effective Client, Why Being a Good Client is Smart Business in the Architecture, Engineering, and Construction Industries. And now, Dave, it's time for the Civil Engineering Hot Seat. You ready? Do this. First question, do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, maybe you have a morning routine or a lunchtime routine or just something that you do consistently that has contributed to your success? A big one for me has been learning what time of day I can do certain things well. And I do a fair amount of writing, whether it's you know for my book or writing blogs or just preparing a good presentation for me involves a little bit of writing because depending on the presentation, I like to repurpose material. So I'll sometimes write out a speech word for word just so I can maybe use the speech in different mediums potentially. But I find that I can only do that well first thing in the morning, newly caffeinated, cup of coffee, sit down. And probably because my mind's been working on it while I've been sleeping a little bit, I have an hour or two that I can really just jam on something. And then if I try to write at four o'clock or eight o'clock or 10 o'clock, I'm just going to be worthless. So I think understanding that about myself has been really helpful. And I don't do that every single day ritualistically, but when I do need to write, 
I got to do that first thing in the morning and I got to make time for it. We talked about your book. Are there any books for you that have stood out throughout your career? I read a lot of books, but there are always those couple on the bookshelf, couple that you might mention to people, hey, you got to go check out this book. Is there one or a couple that just stand out for you that you remembered and that you've leaned on? Well, there are definitely a few authors I cite in my book, authors like Simon Sinek and, and Daniel Pinker, a couple of my favorites. But I think for people in the civil engineering industry, one that I'll cite is uh, an author named Stephen Johnson. That's Stephen with a V. He wrote a book called Farsighted, and it's about complex decision-making. It's a really great book. The guy's a great... He uses a lot of great anecdotes, and it's very, very readable, and it's fun to read. And he also uses several really complicated public projects for the basis of some of the points he makes in the book. So there's one is like this, some sort of water project in Seattle that was really messy and complicated. And then he uses this project in New York City that involved a pond and sort of what are we going to do with this pond? So they're definitely projects in water like for me, but I think they're very relatable to people just in any aspect of engineering. And it's really about complex decision-making, which we all deal with. And he talks about it in a really useful way and a very readable way. So it's a really great book, Farsighted. Thinking back on some of your managers throughout your career, and if you think of your favorite manager or managers, and we don't have to name names here, but what made them your favorite? Like We're trying to just understand from your perspective in the world of engineering, what makes for great managers? Well, thankfully, it's my current boss. Uh, she's been great. I've worked for her 12 years, and she's very accessible, very consistent, very warm, but she also understands what makes me tick individually and then finds things, challenges for me that she knows I will specifically be good at and want to get into. And so she's challenged me in the right ways throughout my career really well. She's also makes it fun. It, fun is okay too. It is, things don't have to be serious all the time. She's very visionary, strategic, and believes in what we're doing as much or more than anybody else too. It's tough to be more motivated than your leader. That would not work that well. So I think that was really important too. Like they have to be, know how to motivate and, and believe in what we're doing as much or more than the people working for them. So those are a few things that come to mind. All right, Dave, I got one final question for you here. We call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. So if you got into an elevator with a civil engineer, let's say you know someone likely earlier in their career and you had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her, what career advice would you give them, Dave? Yeah, I actually did a little video, a social media post about this a month or two ago with an intern I had. And a short thing is that for some of us, the first four or five years out of your uh, school, the job kind of sucks for some of us. And there's no getting around that. I didn't realize that early in my career. Those first four or five years, there's three things you kind of need to do to give yourself access to the more interesting, broader, bigger parts of the job, project management and, and driving the direction of something. And that's you need to work accurately. So people need to rely on the work you're doing. You have to be able to do it independently so that you're not being this time suck on somebody having to hold your hand all the time. And then thirdly, you got to work efficiently. It can't take you 10 hours to do something that takes somebody else one hour. And so if you can work accurately, efficiently, and independently, especially those first four or five years of your career, that enables you to have the credibility to move on to bigger and better things. And boy, the job just gets more fun after that, in my opinion. I didn't know that back then. And I almost quit engineering my first couple of years out because I didn't see that far out to know that, but the job gets better and better, but you got to prove it those first few years. 
All right. So Dave, before we let you go here, where can our listeners either connect with you or find the book? Tell us a little bit about how to find you. I'm on LinkedIn. I post weekly. A lot of it is about stormwater related issues. That's kind of in my field, and but also about issues related to my book, about being a good client. And so you can find me on LinkedIn. My book's available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. If you can bear the sound of my Ray Romano-like voice, you can find my book on Audible. The book, I pride myself in having written it only as long as it needed to be. I originally had this 50,000 word number in my brain that I needed to get to. And eventually I said, the heck with it. I only needed about 30, 35,000 words, which is about 125 pages to say what I had to say. So you can read it in three or four hours. You're welcome. I didn't beat it to death. You can find it on uh, Amazon. Once again, uh, Dave Scudis, author of The Effective Client, Why Being a Good Client is Smart Business in the Architecture, Engineering, and Construction Industries. Dave, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been great. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Dave. And I just want to thank all of our listeners out there. This is our 200th episode. And to me, that's a big milestone because when you start a podcast focused on civil engineering, you don't know how many listeners you'll have, if it's going to help people, will people find it and use it in their careers. And I can tell you from the response I've gotten from people, the LinkedIn messages, the emails, just when I see people at conferences, the Civil Engineering Podcast has made a difference in many civil engineers' lives and their careers. And for that, I'm grateful. So thank you for sticking with me through 200 episodes, or maybe you're new. Feel free to go back and listen to them. we got a lot of exciting episodes coming up, and I hope that you'll stick with us along the way. Please remember you can find the show notes for this episode and all episodes at civilengineeringpodcast.com. For this one, look for episode number 200. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.